You are listening to the Fur Road Christian Church Podcast. Our mission is to love God and love people. For more information about Fur Road, visit furroadcc.org. That is F-I-R-R-O-A-D-C-C dot org. Now for this week's message. We are well into Core 52 at this point, and hopefully you guys are kind of becoming pros at memorizing your verses, hopefully. Uh, I know it seems weird to go home from church with homework, but then, hi, but then uh, the, the more I think about it, I, we should kind of always feel like we're leaving here with homework. We have a job to do. We should leave here with homework, and memorizing the Word of God seems like a pretty decent use of our time, uh, better, than, better use of our time than being on Facebook anyway, and if we're honest, that's probably all we would have otherwise been doing with that five to ten minutes. Uh, so I have this assignment today out of the book is of uh, Jesus as the New David. And sometimes I feel like Dan gives me topics on purpose. Like, hey, Jesus is king. It's, it's election year, so you feel good about that, Jordan? Like, yeah, great. We'll talk about politics. That's fun. Uh, I probably won't make anybody mad today. It's going to be great. Um, but so here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to change up my usual preaching format today, and I'm just going to give you the entire sermon right now, and I'm just going to keep talking for like another 18 minutes. So, uh, here we go. This is, this is the whole sermon. Jesus is king. All right, so if you're, if, if you're on board with that, if you're cool with that, if you're happy, awesome. Don't feel like you need to hear how I want to flesh out how that should look for uh, the rest of this year. That's fine. Feel free to check out. I've said pretty much everything that I feel like I need to say at this point anyway. Uh, I really actually considered, legitimately considered just praying and dismissing us, but I'm a minister, so y'all know I like to talk. So here we go. First, I was going to start with kind of an explanation of what's going on in Matthew's genealogy at the beginning of of the gospel according to Matthew, which Mark does touch on in his book in Core 52, uh, how David's name is 14, so on and so forth. So let me just say, uh, if you read that in the book this week and you are either intrigued by it or confused by it or both, I'd love to talk to you about it. The Jews, ancient Jewish culture did things with numbers, had rich, rich symbology with how they used numbers, just totally different from the way we did. So like, hit me up, I'd love to chat about it. And actually, uh, don't just hit me up, I have a baby, I'm poor. Take me out to dinner, I'd love to chat about it. Like, that sounds, that sounds like a good time. Uh, but last week, Dan talked about uh, David and Saul a little bit. Uh, how God was establishing his kingdom here on earth. Now David ends up being the one who God promises to keep his line on the throne for all time. That through his lineage he will establish a king that lasts forever. And we can look back now and see that as Jesus. But at the time that may have been more of a challenge. Because after, after the wonderful reign of David and Solomon takes over, the temple is built. Israel is kind of having its heyday. And God's promise seems to be in full effect. But after Solomon, it gets really ugly, and it happens in a hurry. His children end up fighting over the throne. The once great nation of Israel eventually splits in two. So you have Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Eventually, Israel, the northern kingdom, gets taken over by the Assyrian Empire, never really to be heard from again. And a little later, Judah succumbs to the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonians had a strategy for taking over other nations. The people that they didn't brutally kill, they would try to assimilate. 
So they took the Jews out of Jerusalem, they took them to Babylon, and they filled their mind with Babylonian things. Right? They gave them, some of them, really good lives, actually, but distinctly Babylonian lives. Now, eventually, an entire generation came up, a generation that never once knew what it was like to live in Jerusalem. All they had were stories of their parents and their grandparents, and we actually still have some great characters come out of this time period of 70 years. Daniel, like Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these all were during the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, that was Babylonian captivity. Nobody in the line of David was on the throne. Nobody in the line of David will again be on the throne for 400 more years. But what we do have is multiple generations of people learning how to honor God in a culture that doesn't even know who God is. This is what we call living in exile. And shockingly, Jewish culture survives, and it actually does pretty well, even through uh, it took, it, I mean, it took a few revivals, but it does pretty good even through the capture of four other mighty nations, eventually culminating in the Romans, the Roman Empire. Now, as we get closer to Jesus, we have Jews living under Roman rule, but they have their temple. They have a lot of their religious practices, but for hundreds of years, they have been waiting and waiting for their new David to come and rescue them. The Messiah that was going to reestablish them as the lone superpower nation in the world. And they fell for many, many people claiming to be just that. Some, some estimates have about 200 people during that time period. Different people claimed to be the Messiah and tried to lead uh, revolutions. Hopefully this is kind of sounding uncomfortably familiar already. But then Jesus does come. David's line finally is reestablished, if not in a way that none of them were really expecting or hoping for. Jesus doesn't overthrow Roman rule. He does something way more crazy. He establishes a kingdom that is not dependent on a nation for its survival. He establishes a kingdom that can exist anywhere in the world, no matter who is in power at the time. And I really do mean no matter who is in power. Let's just take a quick look at the book of Romans. All right, Paul is writing a letter to the church in the city of Rome. This is after Jesus has already lived, died, resurrected, gone back to heaven. At the time of writing, the emperor is a guy by the name of Nero. Now, Nero actually seems great for about a half a second because he's the one that allows the Christians back into Rome. They had previously been kicked out of the city. So Nero allows the Christians back into Rome. It just all goes up in flames literally after that. Some of you got that joke. I'm just going to leave it. Let it. Let it simmer for a second. That's bad. Uh, So after Nero sets fire to half the city, he blames the Christians for it. There are all kinds of crazy stories about Nero at this time. For instance, he liked to take evening strolls in his garden, uh, or if he was having parties out in his gardens late at night, it is said that he would impale Christians on poles and light them on fire to give light to his evening's festivities. So let's just say not a super respectable guy. So Paul comes in here with some words of encouragement to the church who is dealing with this, and this is what he says. I'm not going to have it on screen. Just imagine being these people in Rome. This is happening to you, and somebody comes to your church gathering and reads a letter of encouragement from Paul. This is what Paul says. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. 
the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul's advice is simply to remember that Jesus is king. History tells us the story of what happened to these Christians from Rome. Uh, they listened to what Paul said, and many of them were killed. Many of them were killed, but they chose to live as exiles, honoring God and Nero and each other in a culture that doesn't know who God is. And everyone wanted a piece of their weirdness, a piece of their joy, their hope. A couple hundred years later, the entire Roman Empire, which was a good chunk of the world at the time, had become Christian. Because of their choice to love and respect, even people like Nero, guys, can that be said of this group in here today, election year in America, and before you can tease yourself, the answer is no. It can't. See, all of our activity on Facebook and how we engage with each other, especially people on the other side, thus it betrays something. Betrays that we, we don't think Jesus is king. We might say we do, but our actions don't match up with that belief. Not only that, we're expecting political candidates to come and save us, to bring, bring us into a golden age of America that is either left in the past or just in front of us if we can just move forward a little bit depending on which side of the fence you may land on. The problem is Jesus is king. Jesus was king when David was king. Jesus was king when Nero was king. Jesus was king under Washington, under Lincoln. Jesus was king when Obama was president. Jesus, uh, Jesus didn't randomly become king again in 2016, or he didn't randomly evacuate his throne in 2016, depending on which side of the fence you want to land on. And I know that you would say that you agree with me, but then also the actions and the outrage really don't always seem to match up here. Like, do we realize that, that Jesus is king in China, in the Middle East, in India? It's funny because I, I know a lot of we Americans, we act like the fate of the gospel lies in us maintaining our religious freedom and our place of dominance in the world. And it's funny how those two things have kind of become woven together in our thinking. It's not a new thought. It's actually a really ancient Jewish thought. It's not unique to us, but it's one that Jesus didn't seem to jive with super well. 
but we're stuck. We're kind of stuck in this thinking, and I think there's a few things that contribute it, contribute to it. And I was fortunate enough to go to the preaching and teaching convention this past week. And here's some truth about the state of Christianity in America since the 1950s, where we have data all the way back to, I, I think he said 57, 58. But there's this narrative going around that Christianity is shrinking in America. And we assume that because culture is becoming less and less godly. That's pretty obvious to everybody. Uh, so we have all of these well-meaning people that are saying this country used to be so great, used to be so godly. Now, now all these young people, the media, they're just ruining everything. Uh, young people are leaving the church in droves. That's what people say. We're all going to hell if we continue on this trajectory, right? The problem is it's not entirely true. Not entirely true. Culture is becoming less godly. That, that's obvious, but actually the trend of American tr- Christianity has actually been flatlined since about the late 50s. And this is something we talked about in college, I've assumed ever since, but conveniently uh, I was just shown all of the data this week, so were Dan and Katie, we were all in that session together. It's kind of funny how God provides me information at just the right times. But anyway, roughly 25% of Americans in the late 50s and early 60s are what we would have called committed, convicted Christians who actually, like, their faith has an impact on their life, the way they think, the way they act. Right, about 25% of America. At the time, about 75% of America would have called themselves Christian, but about 25% are who we would say have been baptized and who actually live, that, live their faith out in their regular day-to-day life. In 2018, that number was still 25%. All right, Christianity is not shrinking in America. Nominal Christianity is shrinking. Is in the people who show up like on Christmas and Easter and call themselves Christians but then never let it affect their life for the rest of the year or during the week. All right, that number is shrinking. Why? Because culturally there's no longer an advantage in calling yourself a Christian. Forty years ago you would say, yeah, I'm a Christian because that was viewed as a good thing. Right, Christians were viewed morally highly in the culture. Now, not so much. So all of these people are, are ditching the camp because it's no longer a good thing to call yourself a Christian. Here's my point in saying all this. That means that in the last several decades, we have not seen any significant movement in Christianity in America, either negative or positive. That everything that we thought was working when we saw churches growing was more than anything people swapping churches, trying out the, what the latest flavor was. Most people think that uh, what, what most people think was a heyday in the late 50s and then happening again in the 90s uh, was not a significant movement in convicted disciples of Jesus. Following the teaching to love your neighbor, every trend, everything that we've tried for the last five decades hasn't moved the needle on committed Christians in any significant way. I don't think that's the teenager's fault. But Jesus is still king over America. I'm not too worried about it. Jesus is still king over America, even though not much progress has happened, just like he's king over China, but the church in China is growing. In America, it's stagnant. So I don't know. I really don't know. I just want to pose the question so we can think about it, we can wrestle with it a little bit together, but is it a bad thing for the advancement of the gospel that we get pushed more and more to the margins of society? I don't necessarily think so. Now, I don't love the idea that it's going to be harder for Asa to be a Christian than it was harder for me. But if I'm honest with myself, a lot of what I'm mad about or a lot of the reason I'm mad is mainly because my faith has become distinctly American 
as in it's gotten fat and lazy. What I'm really concerned about, and what I would maybe ask you guys to, to explore in yourselves along with me in, in your own hearts, is that underneath everything that I'm saying, I'm concerned that my Christianity is starting to cost me something. Like when I tell people that I'm a minister that's no longer necessarily reciprocated with a lot of positive feelings towards me, being a Christian is, is starting to cost me something. And I find it awfully ironic that a group of people claiming to follow a crucified king is fighting against that so hard. Because maybe, maybe that's exactly what the church in America needs, is to be able to truly follow a king that asks us to take up a cross. So at some point, at some point, a generation is going to have to rise up and fix everything that we've kind of failed at. Someone is going to have to take back the morality that we've tried to pass off to the government, the care of widows, orphans, teenage mothers, that we tried to just give away to politics, you know, the commands of Jesus for us to do those things that we just want Washington to do for us, and now we're getting mad because they aren't. Someone is going to have to really wrestle with what it means to have your faith require sacrifice because it is no longer seen as a cultural good. And honestly, I like their chances of this better than ours. Because they're growing up in Babylon. They're the first generation of Christians to be growing up in a culture that doesn't know who God is. Trying to honor God in that culture because our culture used to pretend to know who God is. Now it's just finally being a little more honest with itself. And then they're able to identify in a way that we never were in our childhood, what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. And in a religion that requires sacrifice to be a part of genuine discipleship, I'm not convinced that that's such a horrible thing. Because if, if these trends were all to continue, I don't want them to continue, but if these trends were to continue, Jesus is still king. Please hear me, I, I'm not saying that we should stop caring. We need to care. These are, there are issues in front of us. This is election year. This is a good thing, right? We have the opportunity. We live in a place where we are allowed to have our voices heard. I'm not saying stop caring about that stuff. What I am saying, I want us to be involved, but what I am saying is that I want us to stop worrying. Stop pretending like our desire for our faith to remain easy is somehow admirable. Because for the past several decades, what we have been trying hasn't been working. And if we want to reverse these trends, we have to be willing to recognize and admit that. But we have examples in front of us that are working really, really well. All in cultures that we're all actively trying to avoid. All right, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So as we get into the drudgery of another political season, let's just everybody take a, take a deep breath. Just do it with me. Just let's... Take a deep breath. And say these words with me. Jesus is king. But Jordan, you might say, I get that Jesus is king and all, but I'm afraid that at this trajectory, we may not even be allowed to come to church anymore. And that's right. Like, if all this stuff were to continue, I may be out of a job. I don't like that. Asa may undergo legitimate persecution someday. Uh, I don't like that, but to that I would say, yes, we need to care about these things. I want to care about that. I want to reverse this trend, but look to examples of how changing a culture has worked in the past and is still working in the present. Uh, Another four years of Trump isn't going to change the culture in America. 
And that's not an indictment on Trump. Before you either applaud me or crucify me, depending on which side. Like, that's not an indictment on Trump. That's a simple fact that our political figures are creations of culture, not creators of culture. All right, so Trump and all his Trumpness and Hillary and all her Hillaryness four years ago, that they were a representation of what the culture was like in America. It wasn't pretty, right? But they didn't create that culture. Right, uh, you realize, like, it, it, I think it's simple, but you realize, like, if Christians and Midwestern Americans weren't angry four years ago, weren't still, weren't feeling like we've been being looked down upon, weren't feeling like we've been being left behind with nobody taking us seriously, uh, Trump's rhetoric would have been different. You realize that, right? Because our political figures are creations of our culture, not creators of culture. So let's stop the insanity of trying to fix our country exclusively in this way and look to examples that have worked and still do work presently. What has worked and is still proving effective to this day in places like China, India, etc. is Christians living in exile. Speaking respectfully of everyone, even Nero, even if they don't deserve it. Like, so it's looking like it's probably going to be Bernie and Trump this year. That might change. That's fine. But whoever it is, like, Bernie isn't Nero. Trump, de- Trump definitely isn't Nero. And if the Christians being put to death by, by that man can show him respect, for the love of God, and I'm not swearing, I'm saying for our love of God, can we please change our rhetoric this year? Can we change the way that we talk to each other? Can we change the way that we engage on Facebook and with people who disagree with us, please? No, this room is the only group of people that's listening to me say this, but at least can we change the way that we talk this year? All right, showing respect to everybody, loving our neighbors, taking care of widows and orphans and teenage moms who just want to make their problems go away because they're scared. What has worked in the past, is still working today, is holding fast to the tenets of our faith and in kind of a way quietly honoring God in a culture that doesn't even know who God is. Every generation between Jesus and now, every single generation of Christians has pioneered a way of making life better for people. Did you realize that? First, it was taking care of widows. First, it was taking care of widows. Nobody was doing that before Jesus said to, and women. Then the sick, we made the first hospitals. Christians were the first people to make hospitals. Then it was the hungry. We made the first organizations to fight hunger on a, world, on a global scale. We took on slavery eventually. And then water. The most recent is people just a little older than, than Corey uh, started taking on the trafficking industry. Every generation of Christians has pioneered a way of making people's lives better. And at no point, at no point, were they asking culture to do it for them? It was all Christians being willing to take up their cross, take seriously the teachings of Jesus, to love their neighbor, and doing it. And every single time, without exception, culture has followed. Because they see the good that we've been doing. I wonder what they're going to do. I wonder what Asa's generation is going to do. Maybe they'll be the ones because of technology and the things that we have maybe they'll be the ones to actually eradicate hunger they'll finally be able to finish it off or maybe maybe because of uh, all of these new digital spaces that are existing maybe they'll be the first ones to actually blow the whistle on some of all of the new possibilities of evil that we're seeing crop up with this maybe i have no idea what they're going to do but i know 
I know that they aren't going to do anything if we don't help them. All right, if, if we can't admit that we failed, for the church to not grow in the last 50 plus years is our greatest failure that we don't even know is happening. And these kids are reaping the rewards of our stagnation and addiction to political power and freedom over genuine discipleship, and now they're growing up in Babylon because of it. Which means that they will need you. They need me, they need you to tell them the stories of our faith. Tell them the tenets of our faith. They won't hear it at school. They won't hear them, a lot of them at home. They won't hear it online, at least not at the rate that they're going to be hearing other things. I genuinely believe that they are the first generation in our country in a really long time uniquely positioned to revive committed discipleship. But they can't do it if we don't help them. Whether they know it or not, whether they think they want it or not, all of us need to find one person younger than ourselves to share the stories of our faith with. Whether that's a 70-year-old with a 50-year-old, a 50-year-old with a 30-year-old, and a 30-year-old with one of them, it doesn't matter. But we all need to accept our role as mentoring people younger than ourselves so that we can grow up, so that we can live godly lives in a culture that doesn't even know who God is. I may not like the state of how things are going on here. But I'm not worried. Right, I'm not worried big picture. I've read Revelation. I know we win. It's going to be fine. The gospel isn't going to just suddenly die. Right, but I'm also not necessarily too worried about, about here and now short term because these guys are growing up understanding something that I've been running away from. That discipleship requires sacrifice. And I'm not worried because no matter how rough my life, their life, or even Asa's life may get, we can rest in the fact that Jesus is king and that this place, this is not our home. God, thank you so much for, for being different from the rest of the world and sending us a king that can exist in all spaces at all time no matter what is going on around us. And thank you for examples that we can look to and God, I just ask that you be with us this year as it's going to be stressing a whole lot of people out. I'd ask that you can just help us remember the simple fact that you are in control of everything that is going on, whether we like it or not. God, we love you so much. And God, I ask that all complaints about today's message be directed towards Dan. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.